Hello everyone. Before we get started with this call, I just want to make a quick announcement so you don't get disencouraged to listening. During the middle of this call, we had a little problem with connection, and for about 30 to 40 seconds, the audio of our guest wasn't the best one. But I encourage you to stay with us, enjoy this call because it's amazing and we learned a lot. So enjoy the call. Welcome to the Cattle Call podcast. Today we have Wendy Jackson again here to our research call. Before we go ahead and call Wendy, let me go ahead and, and call Brooke Latek. Hello, Brooke. Hi, Pedro. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Is it a good time for a call? It's always a great time for a cattle call. Great, great. So today we have Wendy again today, right? Hi, Wendy. Hi, Pedro. Hi, Brooke. How are you doing? Good. Uh, happy to be back again. Thanks for the, the invite for the research call. That's nice. No, it's it's our pleasure to, to have you here. So, Brooke, you want to go ahead and, and talk with Wendy about this? Sure. Um, we have some exciting work that Wendy's done, so I'm excited to hear about it, um, specifically that she's done down here in the Imperial Valley. So it's exciting for us just because it's so local and relevant. Um, so I'm hoping our, our listeners get excited about this. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the research Wendy did uh, during her PhD work. Um, so I'm just going to start off and ask what we usually start with and is, can you just tell us about this project and how you came up with the idea to do it? Sure. Um, so I, the, I had three chapters in my dissertation and two of the three um, pertain to a liver abscess study um, that primarily was conducted um, across three different feedlots in the Imperial Valley that represented different management styles. And you might be wondering why, why liver abscesses um, and how I happened upon that topic. Um, and when I started my PhD, I was very interested in doing um, livestock infectious disease work um, and something that would be very applied um, to address the current problem um, in one of the livestock industries. And in my discussions with Dr. John Beckett, who I know I've mentioned in the previous podcast, um, we had a conversation about the growing concern about increased prevalence of liver abscesses in feedlot steers, um, specifically Holstein steers, uh, which are bull calves that originate from the dairy industry and then through what we call the calf-fed Holstein industry um, are raised on calf ranches for four months, adapted and backgrounded in preparation for feedlot environment. And then they are fed out usually for about 320 days. Um, on the feedlots in the Imperial Valley. Um, and they have a very successful industry down there um, utilizing these types of animals. Um, but one, one of the issues that has arisen, um, at least in the raising of calf-fed Holsteins and other aspects of the U.S. and the High Plains and Panhandle, are um, this increase in liver abscesses. And the reason it's important for producers, um, for welfare, and then also for packers is that... Um, Condemnation of livers um, as a result of abscesses um, is very prevalent and issues can arise during the processing um, of cattle with abscesses where those abscesses may open and contaminate the um, working environment and then the chain has to stop, things have to be disinfected. And so it's, it's inconvenient, but it also represents a loss of uh, carcass value um, because the liver has to be condemned. Um, other studies have, have shown that it can impact average daily gain in cases of severe abscesses where 
uh, the, the liver has a vital role in um, metabolism. And so when a large portion of the liver is um, diseased, um, that animal cannot um, metabolize feed and put on the same amount of weight and muscling as other animals without abscesses or without severe abscesses. So um, my objective primarily was in trying to understand um, potential risk factors for liver abscess development beyond what we sort of already know may be precursors, which are um, a high grain diet fed on feedlots and potentially the long um, days on feed um, that are common in the calf fed Holstein industry. And to address that, I um, wanted to do a longitudinal study, which means I followed animals over time through the entire production system um, to monitor different things and to understand um, different risk factors. So um, to make a long story short, I enrolled calves um, at on the first day of arrival at a calf ranch. So they are usually around 24 to 36 hours old. I wanted to look at their um, immunoglobulin level, which is essentially uh, indicator of the success of colostrum um, transfer as uh, an exposure um, and potential risk factor for abscess development later on in the production cycle. Um, Colostrum, as you know, is very vital to the health of um, bovine animals um, and calves because they don't have the transfer of maternal antibodies um, across the placenta in utero. So those first 24 hours are very critical to gaining maternal antibodies that then protect the calf while its immune system is developing the first 14 days to 30 days um, at the calf ranch. Um, so I enrolled those calves, um, measured the IgG levels using radial immunodiffusion, which is the gold standard for um, IgG measurement. And then they got to be managed as they usually were at the calf ranch for four months. And I essentially um, let them be. And then at the time that they were ready to be shipped to the feedlot, um, I arranged to have them divided across six different loads um, to arrive at three different feedlots that represented different management styles. And that also had uh, different liver abscess prevalence based on records provided by the slaughterhouse. Um, and so the rest of the study entailed me um, driving down to those feedlots and uh, ultrasounding them at enrollment. And then every three months through the finishing cycle to try and detect abscesses since um, they are not easily detected prior to slaughter because a lot of animals are subclinical or asymptomatic. Um, and so ultrasound, what we call transabdominal hepatic ultrasound, where we scan between the eighth and 13th rib on the right side um, is one of the only diagnostic tools we have, but it, it also is plagued with a lack of sensitivity um, because the, the liver and the conformation of the animal can really impede your ability to see the deeper margins of the liver. But I wanted to see if I could detect those abscesses as they were developing during the production cycle. I also monitored serum biomarkers related to hepatic um, enzymes to see if um, there were any sort of 
blood parameters that could be used um, as a predictor of abscesses. Um, and then I followed them all the way through to finishing to collect uh, liver abscess scores at the slaughterhouse and then also submitted those abscesses to um, Dr. Nagaraja's lab at Kansas State for anaerobic um, susceptibility testing. So it was a very long project, <laughs> it was 13 months. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the middle of the night ultrasounding steers because it was the coolest part of the day and the least stressful um, for handling them in that environment. Um, but overall, I had a really great experience um, with the project overall. That's great. Um, so, and you mentioned some your the challenges that you experienced specifically with ultrasounding the liver and being up in the middle of the night in order to do all of that work. Um, so, thanks for answering that question for us. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about the results, what you saw, and um, whether or not you were able to figure anything out through all this testing? Well, my primary, um, my primary interest was in understanding if there was an association um, with the immunoglobulin level and then the presence of liver abscesses at any point during the production cycle. And so having a low immunoglobulin concentration was considered an ex the exposed group versus having a, a high immunoglobulin level was considered unexposed. I did not find an association between that um, immunoglobulin level and liver abscess prevalence, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the calf immunity isn't somehow linked um, to their susceptibility for developing abscesses. But I think a more granular um, health parameter would need to be longitudinally followed because there's so many different stressors during those four months at the calf ranch that can influence the developing immunity in addition to colostrum. Um, I mean, colostrum still remains the number one management technique to minimize disease incidence in neonatal calves. Um, and I think it plays into that, but for me to capture that more granular information, I would have had to have uh, greater access to some of the treatment records at the calf ranch, which unfortunately I, I didn't have access to. So. It, the liver abscesses were still very much an issue. Um, there was quite a variation in the prevalence across the three feedlots that I studied. Um, one of them had the highest, um, and it was 25% of all of the of all of the steers that were in the study from that feedlot had abscesses, um, and the highest prevalence of um, Tylosin resistant abscesses also came from steers that had had exposure to tylosin during the finishing period, which could speak to um, potential resistance building or uh, there being a location dependent pattern in resistance, which we know can happen um, based on some other studies that have been done with liver abscesses. So, um, we also saw that A-plus abscesses were highly prevalent, and those are the most severe abscess. You know, those abscesses can be sometimes upwards of 10 to 15 centimeters in size. Um, sometimes they can adhere to the diaphragm and um, cause a lot of potential risk for um, that abscess opening and, and causing peritonitis in the animal. Um, and those with the A-plus abscesses also had the worst quality grade. Um, so they were the ones grading select. 
So we know that there is an impact on carcass quality um, with liver abscesses um, across these different production systems. Um, with regards to the biomarkers, um, there was definitely a pattern um, in serum globulin levels being predictive of A plus severe abscesses. And that um, makes biological sense because uh, globulin levels will increase um, in relation to chronic antigenic stimulation in an animal. Um, and so over time, if these abscesses are there for potentially months, um, they do wall them off in this very large capsule, but the body is still being exposed to the bacteria um, to a degree. Um, and so there is potential predictive ability in assessing the presence of severe abscesses in animals with high globulin levels, but that still needs to be followed up on in future work. Um, so I have not solved the mystery as to why CAFED Holsteins have this increased prevalence, um, but we do know that diet likely plays a role, days on feed, um, and then potentially Previous exposure to um, metaphylactic antibiotics may play a role, but I don't have enough um, data on that to, to really make a generalization. It just was present in this study. So overall, um, lots of work to, to still be done there that hopefully Pedro can <laughs> solve in his future work. <laughs> um, but it is an intriguing topic and one that has pulled together my interest in ruminant nutrition, disease, and epidemiology um, to try and to elucidate some answers to. That, that that's very nice, Wendy. I actually like, yeah, it's it's your work was a lot of work. Uh, one one quick question that I have here: uh, Were you able to detect using the ultrasound? How was the ultrasound technique? Uh, the ultrasound, so as you can imagine, the first few months, the steers are pretty small. And so your visibility and ability to penetrate um, pretty much all aspects of the liver is really good. So you have good visibility. Um, I the, the problem with ultrasound, I think, as a diagnostic tool is you never know when day one is that the abscess is seeding mm -hmm. and when they're so small um, you know, they're there, but they haven't damaged enough of the liver to be visible to a degree that you would have the sensitivity to pick it up. Usually with the ultrasound, they have to be at least a couple to, you know, I'd say probably bigger than like one and a half to two centimeters to really detect and to rule out other potential abnormalities in the liver. But there's, there's definite uh, landmarks with regards to the portal vein and hepatic um, arteries that you can differentiate what's normal and abnormal. But my, I would say my clearest indication was around 180 days in feed is when I really started to see them showing up. But then I missed all of summer because it was too hot and stressful to run the cattle at that time. But I feel like there was probably quite a lot that could have changed in those four months. Um, but the interesting thing with abscesses is that you'll realize when you are there to see the livers, um, at the processing plant is that they come and they go. There'll be a liver with one or two small abscesses and then a big abscess scar, which is a giant divot. And there'll be a little bit of like capsule, but most of the bacteria is gone. Um, and so the body is able to 
address them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know what causes one animal to be able to resolve it versus another one. It just blows up. Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting things that go on and it would be good to incorporate a veterinary pathologist um, to also evaluate the structural changes in the liver and then also what could be going on concurrently with ruminitis and the, the rumen itself, which has been seen in, in some previous studies, but I wasn't able to do in this study. That's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And like you said, hopefully we can do more research on that down here. <laughs> I would say after their... After summer, when they are humongous, <laughs> they're, the Holstein steers, like you can't run them through the chute, like mm-hmm. their backs are too, they're so tall, mm-hmm. but also the contact because the fat between the ribs is so thick mm-hmm. that you just cannot get, I had to use a much stronger ultrasound machine at that point. Um, and it was, it, it's really exhausting because you're having to like press really hard to try and get good contact. And then it's just the liver's huge. So you lose sensitivity over time, but the first six months that they're there, I think is your best opportunity to try and use it as a diagnostic tool. That's nice. One, one other question that I have here, just to clarify that you measure IgG upon arrival. Once like the animals are arriving to the calf ranch, do you have any historical data on those calves if they receive colostrum or not or something like that? No. Um, so the calf ranch will typically pay a premium mm-hmm. if the serum total protein, which is measured at the calf ranch, mm-hmm. is above, I think it was like 5.5. And that is used as a proxy mm-hmm. for colostrum feeding and IgG transfer. Um, and the reason I use the radial immunodiffusion technique was that it's the gold standard. It's only measuring IgG where serum total protein um, is measuring, as it says, the total protein in the blood and that that value could potentially deviate up or down based on hydration level of the calf on arrival. Um, but they do try to assess it, but serum total protein is a far faster and easier technique and more cost effective than having to buy plates to do the IgG measurement. Yeah. So 24 hours is usually, if they've had colostrum at the dairy before arriving at the calf ranch, then they should have um, absorbed most of that into the bloodstream by then. That's good. No, that's good. I'm, I'm done with my questions, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, your questions were exactly my questions, so I'm glad you asked them. <laughs> um, and, and so you mentioned just some things, but what would you like to see in the future as to what's next in this line of, of work specifically? Um, I think there's a lot more that we can do to try and understand, um, as you know, like antimicrobial resistant genes can exist in the soil. They can be transferred from feces, um, into that environment, um, and how those, those, um, genes influence or um, can change the susceptibility patterns for new animals that are arriving into those premises because it's an an obvious exposure if they're to eat feet off the ground or just lick and be exposed to the soil that they're laying in. Um, I think with the abscess topic, there is a lot more to explore with regards to the role of the specific diets. potentially bunk management, stocking density, um, also how weather and heat stress may impair um, the usual 
you know, eating cycles so that animals may be more um, susceptible to developing ruminal acidosis um, during the high heat months of the, the summer. So I think there's a, a large role um, for precision monitoring um, to be involved in future research related to liver abscess and um, because I think so much of behavior could potentially play into that. And we just don't have enough data um, to really make those connections right now. But I think the longitudinal studies are really important because uh, managing a calf that comes from a dairy that then goes to a calf ranch that then is transitioned to a feedlot, there's a lot of different management that goes on along the way and understanding how each of those stages impacts long-term production is really critical to having um, the full picture of, of health in these animals. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty good, Wendy. I think you, you cover a really, really nice topic today. Very, very important topic. Something that we want to continue to, to research and something that's very important. You, one thing that I really like about your project is trying to create the connection between calf ranch and feedlots and also the end product that go all the way to the carcass. And I think that's something that we, we have to keep working on and understanding how much this early in life management of the calf has an mm -hmm. impact later on, especially for, for us, for the California industry, beef industry. That's, that's huge. That's very, very important. And we appreciate your work. We appreciate your sharing that with, with us today. So thank you very much once again, Wendy, for, for being here with us. Thanks, Pedro. Yeah, I agree. I think we've research has really shown the susceptibility to disease and also exposure to antibiotics early on in life really can shape the microbiome in the body, which has an important role in um, developing immunity. Um, so I think they're all interconnected, but trying to piece out the role of each can be pretty complicated. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that there's, there's definitely a a, a very important connection there between early life and what happens later on. Awesome. Great. Any final question, Brooke? Nope, nothing from me. Okay. So thank you once again, Wendy. We appreciate your being this call uh, in those two last calls with us. I hope we can, you can bring you in the future to share more about our work and what you've been doing. So we appreciate you being here and we appreciate our listeners to be listening to us. If you have any questions, you're going to, I'll leave Wendy's contact information in, in the description of the episode. If you have questions to us, suggestions, comments, please send an email to kettlecallucd at gmail.com. And remember, it's always a good time for a kettle call. Thank you. We offer the doggies Where spurs are a cowboy is singing this lonesome cattle call.